All right, Matthew chapter 10 tonight, continuing our way through the book of Matthew. And Matthew chapter 10 is a chapter that has many proof texts that people use to teach false doctrine. And uh, whenever we hear me talk about proof text, it sounds like a good thing. It's like a sounds like a text to prove something. But typically, proof texting is a term that we use for those who they will use a text as proof of something, but they're taking it out of context. So it's like they, hey, this line sounds like it's saying what we believe about theology, so let's use it. But if you do a little bit of study, you'll find out that's not what that passage is talking about. And so there's a lot of that that we're going to see in this chapter. But the key to debunking false doctrine is, you know, is that are, you know, especially from isolated texts. The best way to prove or disprove the false doctrine is to prove what it's actually teaching. And when you realize, no, this is what Matthew is trying to express. This is what Jesus is describing right here. Then you know it's foolish to, um, you know, try to use these things to teach. For example, like you can lose your salvation. You know, I'm I'm, I'm going to be having a conversation, a, a private conversation tomorrow uh, with someone. We had to cut our conversation off today, but. Just as we were getting to the good part of the conversation, it's kind of about eternal security and stuff. Uh, he he mentioned a scripture, and I, I know where he's going, and he's going to proof texts from the gospels that people use to teach you can lose your salvation. But all you have to do, you, what you don't do with a situation like that, you don't go to that verse and say, "No, that's not saying you're not going to lose your salvation." No, you go and say, "This is what this passage is saying. This isn't talking about salvation." And, and a lot of times. Um, people combat false doctrine with horrible exegesis of Scripture. And that does not help the cause. We do not want to do that. So if we understand what's going on in a passage, and we understand the context and everything that's taking place, when people come along and pull these things out of context, we're going to see right through it. They're not going to get anywhere with the false doctrine. And especially the dispensationalists, they like to isolate some of these Scriptures in here. And uh, when we understand what's going on, we'll realize how absurd these things are. So, let me briefly, though, explain what's happening in this chapter, and then we will address a lot of the false doctrine that people try to pull from here. So, so far, we have observed, we have seen how Jesus' popularity is growing. He's got multitudes following. He can't even get a nap. He's sleeping through a storm. He's so tired. He's trying, to, he's trying to get away from people. And he just expressed in the previous chapter, in the last verse, how the harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. He saw these multitudes who have needs, and Jesus wants to minister to all of them, but he is a man. He's got to eat. He's got to sleep. He needs rest. And he, there's, there was just so much to do. And he needs help. He needs, he needs laborers. We also see him still calling disciples in the previous chapter. We see him call Matthew to follow him in the previous chapter. And so this chapter starts out where naming the twelve. Now, these disciples, they had already been following Jesus. Jesus has been doing miracles. They've been with him, watching him, observing. But now they're about to kick things up a notch and Jesus is about to send out the disciples. Now it's not just Jesus doing a work. Now He is empowering His disciples. He is giving them the power and authority to do miracles like He was doing. Up to this point, they haven't done these miracles yet. 
But now, he, the disciples are about to go do these same things. So this ministry of Christ is about to expand. And this was very needed because Israel needed to hear the truth about the kingdom, about Jesus and what he had come to do. And it's important that we get a hold of this, okay? There are some things that dispensationalists almost get right. But yet at the same time, even when they start to get close to getting a little factoid right, they jump to a false conclusion and get things wrong. And we don't want to, you know, go and try to swing the pendulum and get so far away from what they're teaching that we go into another ditch into error. I, I, it's important that we understand some of these concepts here. So, um, we must not forget the direct context or interpretation of this passage in relation to Jesus and the twelve disciples. We're talking about Jesus and the twelve. Now, while we can often make application for ourselves in certain ways from this chapter, the direct interpretation is simply about what Jesus sent these 12 specific men out to do. So, keep that in mind. So, verse 1, And when He had called unto Him His 12 disciples, He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses, sickness and all manner of disease. Okay? Now, do you have that power right now? Okay? No, we don't. You know why? Because we have a lot of people out sick tonight. Okay? We don't have that power. Okay, right. We don't, we don't get to read this verse and say, look what Jesus did with his disciples. That means we can do it too. He didn't empower us to do that. He empowered the twelve to do that. So just keep, keep that in mind. And he names the twelve. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, which is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Levius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. These twelve, Jesus sent forth. And notice how they're called apostles here. When they're following Christ, they're disciples. A disciple is somebody who's following, but an apostle is someone who is sent. And so these, these twelve disciples now are being sent by Jesus to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to go and preach the kingdom to them. And so he, Jesus sent them forth and commanded them saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this is where the dispensationalists come on and they make assumptions based on these instructions right here. And they'll say some things that are almost true. And sometimes they'll even state a fact that is true, but it's like because we know where the conclusion they're going to jump to, we try to take that truth away from them and that's not really necessary. Okay, And, and so, what's he talking about? And, we're, and I think we'll see this here in a little bit. But they were to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7, he says, And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there are many out there who are teaching a damnable heresy that the gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel of the grace of God. Okay? And you know what? One thing I like to do with people when they try to tell me the gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel of the grace of God I like that. Preach me the gospel of the kingdom. Preach me, preach me the gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, and they can't really tell you the details 
of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, they will go into some weird stuff, but you know what they won't do? They won't quote verses. You know, like when, we're, when we preach the gospel, we've got verses. You know, we've got the Romans road. We've got things we can show people. But when they want to preach you the gospel of the kingdom, they start explaining all these theological concepts. But you know what they won't do? They won't open up the Bible. They won't open up the gospels. They won't read verses from Jesus, you know, showing that. Even though we can preach the gospel from verses in the gospels. For example, John 3.16. For example... John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. We can preach eternal security from the Gospels. No man shall pluck thee out of my Father's hand. I mean, we can preach all the elements of the Gospel in the Gospels. It, it, it's all there. Because we understand it's all one thing. Um, but they will try to tell you the Gospel of the Kingdom is different. And some of the stuff that they will say about the Kingdom has some truth to it, but yet they, they still miss the point. And I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But what all is happening here? So, verse 8. Let's read a little more. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. And so people will claim that they did this because the Jews require a sign. We, we always hear that line. The Jews require a sign. The Jews require a sign. You know, and they always ignore the context of that where Paul said the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, Jesus and the apostles did do many signs. Okay, understand, there were many signs that were done. The greatest of all sign was the sign of the prophet Jonas where Jesus died and was in the belly of hell for three days and then he rose again. That is the greatest of those signs. But it, it, here's what you've got to understand. Okay? The Jews requiring a sign and God giving signs is not God giving what the Jews require. Okay? What these people are saying, the way they're interpreting that is like the Jews have the right to tempt God. Okay? What happened every time Jews would come to Jesus and say, show us a sign? He wouldn't do it. But yet we often see Jesus showing signs when people weren't asking for it. You know why? Because there was a time and a place for a sign. There were certain major events that had t took place in Israel where God chose to reveal things to man with signs. God, God but God chose those things in His time, in His way, according to His will. And you know what God never did do? God never gave in to the demands of faithless people. God, God never did that. So, this Jews require a sign line that people are always coming up with is a bunch of garbage. Okay? Jesus did signs in these situations because that was what God so chose for that time. It was not because the Jews demanded it of Him. Go read the passages where the Jews demand it. And that is not when He would work. But there was a time and a place for signs. And so, they, while signs served a purpose, and while they were even a necessity... At this point, just understand God is not required by man to give signs at their demand. So, verse 9. He said, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is not worthy of it, or for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire 
Who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, we do, and I, I believe it is appropriate for us to take a principle from this. However, I do not believe we have the same authority and power in this area. Because here, here's a, something we need to understand too. We do need to recognize what specifically is happening in Israel. And this is not talked about in our world that much. Okay, and, and, we've, and we're, we're going to address this tonight. But at the same time too, just because you have a bad day out soloing somewhere does not mean the city deserves to be cursed. Okay? For one, our culture is very different than it was back then too. Where, you know, going into a city or town too, the people were very connected with each other. They were very much alike. Often they were often very much related to each other in many ways. Where we are so disconnected now, people don't even know the names of the people who live next door to them. And you can go to a house today and you will get cussed out at one door and the next door they're going to get saved. You know, it's, you know, so the, the reality is, you know, there's not too many towns in America that probably deserve to have the dust of our feet shaken off of and thrown. I mean, for one, churches are legal everywhere in this country. You know, and uh, and so I'm, I'm sure there's probably some exceptions out there, but a lot of people are really anxious to shake the dust of their shoes off their feet. And I, I don't know it's necessarily because they have the Spirit of Christ in that situation, but when you understand what's taking place here, and I hope I can fully articulate what's happening, I think we'll understand too why Jesus specifically told them what to do and why they also had a, a very special authority to do this at that time too. And so uh, these are all very, in spe- very specific instructions He's given to these twelve. And so what we're seeing in this passage, it's a commission that Jesus is giving them. I'm going to call it the Israel Commission. But it is very similar to the Great Commission. Except in the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? He gave, when He gave the Great Commission, He gave them power over things. You know, and He told them all these miracles and signs and things that they would do. But in the Great Commission, He didn't tell them only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So, understand, and I, I, I might talk more about this in, in other weeks too, but... At the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus ascends to heaven and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, understand at that point, Jesus Christ is the ruler of the world. Jesus is the King of the world. And a lot of people scoff at that idea. Oh, well, spiritually, no. He is is the King. He is over all things. Say, well, I believe He'll be in the millennium. No. Because don't we all believe that before the millennium starts, isn't Jesus going to come and judge the world? Well, how can He judge them unless they have broken His law? And how can they break His law if He doesn't have authority over all of them? So obviously, He is King. He is is the ruler. He is in authority over them. And our world 
has been sinning and transgressing against their king. They have been rebelling against their king. And a payday is coming for it one of these days. And it's going to happen at the beginning of the millennium, not at the end of it. So just, you know, just keep all those things in mind. So he, uh, and so the thing is, after that, that's when he has that authority to send them into all the world. Right now, he just kind of has that, he just has that authority over Israel. And so he sends them specifically, uh, to Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, told them not to go to the other places. So, um, obviously, too, another reason we don't just want to like take everything in this passage and apply it to us, it would be foolish if somebody came along and was like, well, you know what? I believe based on Matthew chapter 10 that uh, we shouldn't go preach to the Gentiles because Jesus said only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's stupid. That was a commission for a specific time, that for something for a specific purpose, and that's been fulfilled. We have now we are now under the great commission. We are all a part of the great commission. So there's a reason Jesus gave these instructions. Something's happening that I'm afraid we're ignoring. So what we're uh, so unfortunately again we often miss things trying to distance ourselves from the dispensationalists. There are often things that they say that are close to the truth, but let's not distance ourselves so much we go into other doctrinal errors. So one doctrine that we find repulsive, and rightfully so, is the idea of the Gentiles being plan B. That, that is a foolish doctrine that is dumb on so many levels. For one, we have many references in the Old Testament that flat out talks about, to him shall the Gentiles seek. You know, uh, Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. That's in Isaiah chapter 45. And it talks about, uh, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That's, that's all right there in Isaiah chapter 45. But at the same time too, we have New Testament Scripture that, shed, that shines a light on those Old Testament Scriptures, making it even more clear that the Gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, that it was always God's plan. Ephesians 1 spells that out. I mean, God ordained this from the beginning. That Jew and Gentile, well, we would all be one in Christ. So the plan B doctrine is very foolish. It's wrong on so many levels. God's original plan from the foundation of the world was a lamb slain, Jesus Christ. That was His plan from the foundation of the world. This is the very plan that Jesus fulfilled. It was always God's plan to save both Jew and Gentile. It was always His plan that they be one in Christ. But here's what we've got to remember. We forget these details and these things are spelled out in the Bible. But the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us salvation. Do you understand the law? Does anybody deny there's something called the law in the Bible? Now, has anybody ever gotten saved by the law? No. But if there is a law to break, that means there is a law to keep. What happens if you keep the law? Well, if you keep the law, there's no condemnation, right? I get it that we've all sinned. But we forget that the law had an end game to it. There's, there's an end result if you keep the law. And it's a great study. To, and it's a great thing that we're, there's a lot we can learn from discussing what things would have been like. And there's scriptures we can go to that kind of, that give evidence of those things. We'll probably reference some of those things tonight. But it doesn't change the fact that it was never going to happen. 
God knew it was never going to happen. So well, why did he put it in there? Because that was what God chose to teach us that we are sinful. If we don't have a law, then how do we learn that we're sinful? How do we learn why we need a Savior? And why a Savior is necessary? And why blood had to be shed? All of the things of the law were meant to teach us about Christ. Then when That way, when He was revealed, and when He fulfills the Gospel, the world would see it and recognize what had taken place. That was the purpose of it. That's what God chose in Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So the law, here's, boy, if you guys get, if you get a hold of this, you are going to be miles ahead of everyone when it comes to Bible prophecy. But remember, the law has two potential outcomes. There's two potential outcomes in the law. Deuteronomy 30 verse 15 says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil. If that in that ye command, in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice and that thou mayest cleave unto him for he is thy life and the length of thy days that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. So we see right there, I'm, I'm giving you two options, Israel. I'm giving you two options, life and death. Now, what did they end up choosing? They chose death every time. You know, and, and how, how do they choose death? By disobeying God's law. And so, they don't get the good part of those promises. They get the bad part. God gave them two choices and they got the bad end. That's, and we need to understand it's the same concept with Old Covenant prophecies as well. We often see two, two potential outcomes in prophecy. And the outcomes are dependent on what Israel chooses. And you know, we always ignore the fact that Israel chose death at every step of the way. And so when we get to Matthew 24, we see, we see destruction. We see salvation. Both are in there. Both are in there, but we ignore the last part of the Olivet Discourse where he talks about the negative because we're also focused on the good part that he talks about in there. And we ignore the fact that, wait a minute, Israel chose death. Why would Jesus have come back and saved them during that time? They got destroyed. So you don't believe Jesus ever come? No, I believe He's coming back. But again, the, the positive aspect of that prophecy was not fulfilled in the first century. But there will be a return of Christ in the future where we will see those things take place. But I don't believe Jerusalem has to be a part of the scenario. They already got theirs. I believe, that, I, I believe we can make application 
and in a day of great tribulation on the earth when we are being persecuted and maybe when we, figuratively speaking, are compassed about with armies, when we're being told we can't buy or sell unless we take this mark of the beast, that during that time, while we feel surrounded and closed in, that the Lord could come and gather in, you know, throughout the whole world and gather. So it doesn't have to be in Jerusalem. That, that, that already happened. So we can make application from those things. But the primary interpretation is it was a prophecy to Jerusalem when they still had the option to choose life and they still chose death. They kept, why? Because they kept choosing the law. And the law results in death every time because all men are sinners. So, remember all those things. There's a lot more Scriptures we could go to to prove this concept. It's, it's an undeniable fact that under the law, things according to the letter of the law can go two ways. And it's the same thing in prophecy. So, hear me out. There are certain aspects of prophecy that the Scriptures have determined will come. But there is no determined timeline. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. Neither the Son, but the Father. You know why? Because I believe that when it came to the, for example, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That's a determined thing Enoch prophesied about. The resurrection. Job talked about the resurrection. Okay, The Lord coming and executing judgment on all the earth, the resurrection, these things, they are determined. These are things that God determined from the beginning. But here's what the Scriptures do not determine for us, and that is a timeline. There is no timeline determined on that. And that's why people need to stop doing things with the Scriptures to try to get some kind of timeline. Well, you know, the 6,000 years and it's like six days. and We don't know that. We absolutely we do not know that. So, there are two potential outcomes. And so, at Christ's first coming, He was presenting Israel with the kingdom of heaven to fulfill God's promises in the law. Because in the law, under the Old Covenant, it was promised, you know, God had told them, there's, there were several things, but I'll just give a, a couple of specific ones. For example, when they came out of the Babylonian captivity, God prophesied they would come out of captivity, they would rebuild their temple, and they were gonna, they, and God gave them some new instructions to follow when they rebuild that temple, and God said, you do all of these things, and then, you know what? The Messiah is going to come. He's going to go through that eastern gate. That happened on Palm Sunday, by the way. Ezekiel talk, it talks about it in chapter 44, I think it is. That, that happened already. He, the Lord will suddenly come into His temple and He's going to purify the sons of Levi and they're going to offer up an acceptable sacrifice like in the days of old. He's going to do all these things. And then what? Well, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit too. Because there, there's more things that would have happened. But guess what? When Jesus Christ came... Israel didn't do anything God said to do. But you know what God did do? He still sent the Messiah like He said He would. Jesus is still coming through on His end. And when He came on His day of visitation into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry, this is the Messiah coming and checking up. Alright, are you ready for Me? Did you do what I told you to do? And absolutely they didn't do it. When Jesus looked at the city, He wept over it. It was an absolute mess, but understand, as Jesus is going through Israel, as the disciples are going through Israel, 
They are. They are preaching the kingdom. And it is. It's coming. It's, be, it's being offered to, it's being offered to them. He's coming through fulfilling his end of things. And, but at the end of the day, they weren't ready. They, they were not, they were not ready. Uh, and they refused. And, and don't get me wrong. Either way you spin it. Okay. Theoretically or whatever. He's going to the cross. No matter what. He's going to be the sacrifice. You know, and we can, I've got some opinions I don't have time to get into on how things could have looked. I personally think if the Jews would have accepted him, I think the Romans just would have put him on the cross. And he'd have paid for sins that way. You know, without the Jews. But then, while the Jews would have had a great morning that day, like Zechariah talks about, and they would have been pretty upset, it would have been a pretty exciting day three days later when he rose from the dead. And then, and then, does all the other things that Zechariah talks about where he's defeating all their enemies and everything? Could have been a great day for him, theoretically, under the law. Just like it would have been great, it'd be great if we kept the law. It was never going to happen, but it was still presented. It was, these things were still presented, and Jesus is coming through on his end. But they chose death. And that's why Romans 3 9 says, What then are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So understand, there were things that were being offered to Israel by the law. You say, well, why did God even offer it? He did it to, you know, because He's just. Because He said He would. He gave... You can't disobey something unless you have been given something to obey. If you obey, there is a result that will come from it. Obviously, they didn't do it. And God knew they weren't going to do it. And so it was always going to be the cross. But we don't want to ignore the fact Jesus is presenting that Israel something by the law. And that's why he'd say things too. Hey, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus said some pretty major stuff. I and mean, we've already showed how in the Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of upping the standard on these things. It's like, what's going on here? And what was Israel supposed to do? You know, what, what Israel should have done is just been like, Lord, have mercy. We can't do it. That would, and that would have been great. And it would have been fine because he's going to pay for their sins. He's, he's going to pay for their sins. But either way, they are being offered something by the law. And unfortunately, they didn't recognize their sinfulness. And so if God promises them life and deliverance, if they keep the law, then it would be sure that God would come through on the promise of the deliverer and the Messiah at the appointed time. And so again, people get freaked out when you're talking about a theoretical salvation like that. But... It isn't necessary because even under the law, Jesus was necessary. Because again, Malachi 3 talks about you know, the Messiah, the Lord coming suddenly into His temple, offering a sacrifice. There are, and there are many. I mean, and time is escaping me. I don't have time to go into all these. Ezekiel talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. There's so much that talks about all these things the Messiah was going to do. But folks, there's some differences. And I'm going to show you some of these here that it's very important we get a hold of this. So Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. If you ever... The, the key to figuring all these things out is understanding Hebrews. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, 
can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Did you see this? Let's get a hold of this. The, the things of the law could not make the comers thereunto perfect or complete. What's that saying? These sacrifices, these washings, these cleansings that were under the law had to be done over and over and over again. And chapter 9 just spent a lot of time showing how a one-time sacrifice was sufficient because Christ is a better sacrifice. And so he's, so he's reminding them the things under the law could never be completed. They would have to keep going. It says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So do you see how he's saying that those, those sacrifices would have to go on forever. They can't make somebody permanently clean and complete like the blood of Christ can. You know why? Because the things of the law are inferior. The things of the old covenant are inferior to the things of the new covenant and the blood of Christ. And so this is why we see prophecies like the ones we do in, about Ezekiel's temple. And there are, there are dispensationalists out there who believe in a coming Ezekiel's temple. And it's like, yeah, when you read about that temple, it's a pretty glorious sounding temple, but it's also one too that is spoken like it will be forever. And you know why? Because it would have to be. If, if things are going to be accomplished by the law, they have to go on forever. We've got to have a temple forever. We've got to have a Levitical priesthood forever. We've got to have the Passover forever. We have to have sacrifices forever if we remain under the law because they can't make anyone perfect or complete. Only the blood of Christ can do that. So, uh, anybody want to go back to the law? Not me. This is so much better. That's what he's explaining in Hebrews chapter 10. Exodus 20. And so, look at this. Okay? And... You know, you always have people, they want to cherry pick certain things. For example, the land. God gave it to land, Abraham the land and his seed forever. Well, wait a minute. Why did Abraham need a land forever? Why did Israel need a land forever? Why did Israel need Jerusalem forever? Why did they need a priesthood forever? Let's keep that in mind. And let's read several forever verses and I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm going to hit a bunch. Exodus 12, 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Alright, I guess we're going back to the feast, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says forever. Oh, that's just for the Jews. The Jews have to do it forever. Not us. It says forever right there. Verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day and your generations by an ordinance forever. Brother Tommy, I've heard you make fun of these so-called Messianic Jews who are still observing the Passover. Yep, and I'm going to keep making fun of them too because they're wrong. Well, the Bible says they need to do it forever. No, they don't. 
Absolutely not. Exodus 27.20, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always in the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall order from evening to morning before the Lord. It should be a statute forever unto all their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Why is it the menorah lit? They've got, they've got supposedly the new menorah over there behind a glass case in Israel. And guess what? It's not lit right now. It's supposed to be lit forever. Why aren't the Kohens going out there and lighting that menorah? It's supposed to be lit forever. The, the Levites are supposed to be doing it forever. Why aren't they doing it? The Bible says forever. Shouldn't we support them lighting that menorah and it being lit forever? Absolutely not. And I don't even have time. I've got a bunch of verses of things under the law that God said are forever. But you know where people get confused is again, they don't understand the purpose. They don't understand what's going on. Um, dude, uh, so Hebrews 10, 11. Hebrews 10, 11 says that every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I don't even have time to go through all these scriptures. Let me just briefly tell you exactly what the Bible is explaining here. The reason Israel needed a land forever is because under the Old Covenant, they had to have a temple, they had to have Levites, they had to have sacrifices to be able to cleanse them from their sins so they could be in the presence of God and so they could be the people of God. So it was necessary that they have a land forever under the Old Covenant, under the law. But after Jesus Christ came and He finished all of the things that the law was never able to complete and it was never able able to perfect, once He did that, Jesus accomplished everything that a forever land, a forever temple, a a forever Levitical priesthood, a forever sacrifice would do. Jesus did all of it. So now they're like, no, they've got to have that land. We've got to help them get that land back. Why? We've got to help them get Jerusalem. They need Jerusalem back. They need to rebuild that temple. Why? Everything's finished. Jesus, Jesus finished those things. Jesus made a sacrifice for sins. They don't need the land. There's, it serves them no purpose whatsoever. None. There is no need for Jerusalem. They should have left that place a wilderness. They should have left it a desert. That place is not needed in any way, shape, or form, all those things that God gave them under the law that were forever things, Jesus came and removed them and completed everything that the temple could only temporarily take care of. He permanently fixed it. He finished it. That, that's so much better. So, the, the think that Christians support fighting over a land. It shows just the utter ignorance they have of the Old Covenant and of the New Covenant. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so there are, there's many things that we can look at from the law that will not play out by the law. Keep that in mind. There are things in prophecy under the Old Covenant that will not play out by the law, but they will find their fulfillment through Christ and through the New Covenant. That's how they will find 
their fulfillment. The appointed time for salvation by the law was just about to come. And so watch the warning Jesus gives His disciples. He said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye should be brought before governors and kings for My sake and for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And I believe this also is a reference to physical salvation. Now, let me ask you, did the disciples receive physical salvation? No, they did not. In fact, according to history, most of them were killed. James is specifically mentioned as being killed. And they, they died for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So verse 23, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall have not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Okay? And so what is this coming that he's referring to? Is this referring to the second coming? Is it going to take 2,000 years for them to go through all the cities of Jerusalem? No. This is why he's telling them, hey, don't waste your time in a city where they're not going to receive you. Shake the dust up and move on. The laborers are few. We've got a lot of people to tell. The time is at hand. The kingdom has come. This is the time of the physical salvation by the law. You need to warn everybody. You need to prep everybody. You need to get them all ready. Because you're not even going to have time to go over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. And when did He come? He came at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And guess what? Israel wasn't ready. Israel was not ready. But again, Jesus still made a way of salvation. The Deliverer still came. And you know what He did? Instead of doing something through the temple by the law that they would have had to continue to do forever, he went to the cross and he made a one-time sacrifice and then he died, he rose again, and he went and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. Think, think about that. Think about how much better that was. Think about how much better that was. And so obviously, the kingdom, you know, did, the, the physical kingdom did not come or take place during that time. There was not a people that were ready. There was not a people that were physically ready by the law. And we see that God extended this invitation to all the Gentiles. And then He goes on in the end of Matthew, He's going to commission the disciples to go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. This one-time sacrifice Jesus did was, first off, it was necessary to even give any of Israel a chance of ever going to heaven. But it was so good, it also gave hope for the entire world to go, to go to heaven. And so, uh, what is this coming? I personally think He is showing there isn't much time left before this coming that was promised. A timeline had been given. And in uh, Daniel chapter 9, for example, but in, 19, in Luke 19.41, when He was come near, and He beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even now, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. You know what he's saying right here? If you would have known, 
you would have gotten something different than what you're about to get. What was coming, what I was offering, what I was bringing, and you weren't ready for, it's hid from your eyes now. You're not going to get it. And he goes on to say, For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. So because they did something wrong, you know what they got? They didn't get salvation in 70 A.D. You know what they got? Destruction in 70 A.D. And they were leveled. They were wiped out as a nation. Israel would not be saved by the law or by their own righteousness. In fact, no one would be saved by the law and by their own righteousness. But folks, the law was a thing. The law had an outcome if you obey it. It had a blessing and a curse. Guess what Israel got? The curse. And isn't that what he says at the end of Malachi? Where he talks about the day of the Lord is going to come? And he you know, talks about, uh, I'm going to send Elias, Elijah to the prophet, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers of the children, children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. We see that, we see that curse reminded of in there. And Israel got the curse. That's, that's what they end up getting. So, Matthew 10, 24, he goes on to say, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Would I tell you in darkness that speak ye in light and what ye hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops and fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered Fear ye not, therefore, ye have more value than many sparrows. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And I talked about that the other day. As a disciple, if we will be there for God, He will be there for us. God needs us proclaiming His name. He does not need us denying His name. He needs us supporting His ministry. And if we are there for Him. When we have need, He will be there and He'll take care of us. This isn't about losing your, gaining or losing your salvation. That's not the context of this. He says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give you to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And anything we can do to help advance the kingdom of God and support his servants is a good thing. You're not going to lose your reward in that. So, what we're seeing here in this chapter, it's a commission to go to Israel to fulfill the things promised to Israel under the law. He is not preaching them a salvation Okay, by the law, because at the same time too, 
what is one of the things that we have already noted that Jesus would love when he would see? It was people's faith. When he would see that faith. Because first off, too, you're not even going to get anywhere with the law without faith. But at the end of the day, that true salvation, that bread of life, that's something he was able to give those who put their faith in him and had faith in him. Those people would be saved. Those people would get the, the, the soul salvation, the permanent blessing. And, and many of those people got that. But did Israel get a physical salvation? No, they didn't. That was something they get, you know, through the promises and the blessings if you obey the law. They didn't do it. But all these people that Jesus preached to, who were very sinful, by the way, but yet believed his message and had faith in him, they did receive soul salvation. They absolutely received that. And one of these days, Christ is going to come back and we'll have a physical salvation. But we have no evidence that the time is at hand for that. We, we, have, we have no evidence. But there, there was a time when a physical salvation was at hand by the law. And it didn't, it didn't happen. So, it's something that we're looking for in the future. But either way, you spend it. The cross is where this was always heading. The law was meant to teach people about their sinfulness and to reveal Christ's righteousness. Jesus Christ came and He fully manifests that righteousness and revealed the sinfulness of man when He went to the cross. Jesus came, think about this, Jesus came preaching righteousness. Okay, preaching righteousness, preaching the things of the law, and He was killed by Israel for it, even though He had not violated any, any of God's laws. I mean, folks, what greater sign that you're a sinner can there possibly be? What a greater example of righteousness is there? The fact that Israel did not learn righteousness and salvation through all these things shows just how hard their hearts were. What it, and, and this was, a lot of times people act like, well, you know, things weren't very effective because it didn't work out. Well, God does give, give us free will. God does give us a choice. And it's not His fault that, they, that the Jews had a very hard heart. His death, burial, and resurrection showed the world the way to salvation in a way that the law never could. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing too. Man, everything is better under the new covenant. And after this great work was performed of the death, burial, and resurrection, we see another commission that we call the Great Commission where Jesus sent His disciples into all, into all the world to every creature and the end result will be much greater and it will be much more glorious because its outcome will be determined on the work of Christ. Not on our works. The next outcome will be glorious. And so, understand, it makes absolutely no sense to teach what dispensationalists teach that one of these days they're going to go back to preaching the gospel of the kingdom in the tribulation. And this time Israel's finally going to do it. This time they're finally going to keep the law. No, that is, that is one of the worst heresies on the planet. They, were, they never did get it right. They never would get it right. They didn't get it right. And so G, and Jesus went and He completed all things of the sacrifices. And this is it. This is it. This is their only shot. This is, this is their, own, their only shot, their only hope. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for this chapter and the things we can learn from it. And Lord, we do thank You for 
uh, the new covenant. I pray, Lord, you help us never take for granted uh, what all you accomplished on the cross. I'm so thankful we don't have to do daily sacrifices and things. But help us, Lord, to uh, be appreciative of these things and let it let the simplicity of salvation and the permanence of salvation just motivate us to go out and tell more people about what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.